Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, we are here today with Mike Youngblood, anthropologist, design ethnographer and cultural strategist at the Youngblood Group. We talked to Mike about his transition from researching social movements to assisting technology firms with human insight. He shares how he preserved his interest in the idea of collective crafting, working as a design ethnographer in the industry how he managed to stay loyal to his anthropological approaches and core ideas facing the demanding industry where actionable recommendations are often asked for. He shares stories from his experience where when finding new ways to frame social problems help to prevent negative consequences that an industry must otherwise have. Lastly, he gives advice for those transitioning from academia to industry and for industries that want to hire anthropologists. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Mike um, Youngblood. Hi Mike. Hello Karina, thank you for having me today. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, um, to talk to you about your experience in this space and to kind of share some of your wisdom with our listeners. Before we start, tell, tell me a, a little bit more about you. What, what you, has been your career so far with um, research, design, technology? Yeah, sure. It's it's been uh, it's been a fun sort of um, unpredictable career. I could not have anticipated where I would go sort of at any point along the way. Um, I I started as a um, pretty conventional anthropologist uh, mm-hmm. in the academy. I had a, a deep interest in South Asia and and social movements, um, and combined those into. Uh, you know, a, a long stretch of field work for my uh, for my PhD, working on uh, farmers' movements in uh, a particular state in India, um, but also looking at social movements more comparatively across the world. But I was interested in how it is that people get involved in social movements, how they craft a collective vision of the, what they want from the world, and how people who don't necessarily have the same socioeconomic and material circumstances um, come together to craft this collective vision and see some sort of common interest in pursuing the same direction. So I was pretty fascinated by that and began to look at at social movements as a as a, a resource that people are crafting together, almost as an object of design, something that they're 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 co-designing. Mm-hmm. Um, and wondering about that sort of collaborative exercise, and is it um, an exercise where everybody has uh, a, you know a same sized seat at the table, or do certain more empowered segments of that community sort of take over and um, commandeer the movement to serve their own interests at the um, at the cost of other people's interests and so forth? That was basically how I got started in um, in real full-length field work. I'd also had a few experiences prior to that where I was looking at uh, nomadic Bedouin people, nomadic camel herders in North Africa for, uh, for a large portion of a year, and also uh, nomadic seal hunters um, in the Arctic, looking at Inuit communities and how the world was changing around them. Mm-hmm. And so in the process, I, st- I was... I became really fascinated through the course of these things in this idea of co-creation and co-crafting societies and um, and economies and ways of extracting a living from from the world around them and, and creating satisfying um, human lives. And that sort of was a segue for me into design. Well, I wasn't really clear that design was what I was interested in mm. because design at the time was... Um, still kind of meant interior design and, uh, you know, choosing curtains at that time. But, um, but that's, what I w- that's where I was heading. And then there were a few other nudges that sort of eventually brought me into the industry world where I was sort of fascinated by applying anthropological techniques in industry. But again, I entered into that uh, through a total fluke. How, how was that? How was that first moment of, uh, of transition? Did, can you remember it? 
I can remember it very well. It was pretty fascinating. I was working on, I was turning my, uh, my field notes into a dissertation and shopping around for a, a teaching position. Mm. And I got a call from a technology firm. This is around um, 1999. So we're mm. just sort of at the crest of the tech bubble and every company on the planet is trying to figure out how to make sense of this internet thing. And the folks that I was talking to were becoming painfully aware that they had this great team of designers and technologists. Um, what they did not have was human insight. And so they were building websites, but they weren't working. They needed something that was going to map better to people's expectations, people's real lives. How do you make an internet experience feel like shopping in the real world or buying insurance in the real world or getting medical advice in the real world? Mm. So they realized they needed some social scientists um, and they were starting to hire them. And I thought this was the most remarkable thing I'd ever heard of. And <laughs> while, I, while I wasn't interested in joining the corporate world, I thought it would be an interesting field study. And so I took a job with these folks and thought I would work with them for perhaps six months and then write a really interesting field piece on life inside a corporate consulting firm. Mm. And, and this new technological revolution. And yeah. Instead of writing that article, I just became a professional in that space and, and loved it. Yeah. Well, what was the, the moment when you knew that would happen for you? I think it wasn't a, it wasn't a particular moment, but it was a, it was a series of, 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 uh, of insights that caused me to, to realize that I could be happy in this, very happy in this space. Um, and one of the main reasons was that in the academic world, um, the, the process of doing field work and, and generating insights from your field work, conducting the analysis, moving to the insights and writing it up, mm. uh, it's a very long stretched out process. And for a lot of people that sort of fills the space of a career, right? Yeah. Your initial yeah. field work foray is something you continue to mine for the rest of your career. Mm. Uh, and that's fascinating, and it's, an, and it's, a, it's a, a really uh, intriguing model of expertise and, and depth. But what I found beautiful about the, the industry world was the, the shortness of the learning cycles. Hmm. So, you know, the, the rate of sort of flipping from going from absolutely no insight whatsoever in property and casualty insurance or... Yeah. Yeah. Um, cardiac medical in interventions and and then ramping up and becoming just smart enough to start to be creative in that space yeah yeah in a way that your your clients weren't able to be because they were too immersed in it mm. so you still got to have that feeling of ethnographic alienation which mm. gave you some some insight then moving through to the end of the of the consulting cycle project is over 12 weeks, 34 weeks later, what have you, and you start again at the very bottom of ignorance yeah. on yeah. a totally new project. And I love that. I found that that roller coaster ride super addictive and exciting. Yeah. Doesn't does does it also feel like sometimes it's taking over your life for for that particular stretch of time or yeah, yeah, yes. And so where it becomes, where it ultimately became kind of demoralizing and tiresome mm -hmm. for me later in my career was when I started having less and less interest in the particular kinds of things that I was helping to put out into the world. Um, so I became still very interested in the intellectual ride, um, but less and less interested in creating another um, cell phone model or uh, automobile dashboard or something that I didn't feel like was critical to advancing the state of our global society. <laughs> no, I can imagine like uh, from the way you started to uh, the, the way your story is at this point, as you're telling it, there sounds like quite a big difference in terms of... Uh, yeah, the purpose of those communities and the products, no? <laughs> yes, quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, not always. I, throughout, my, throughout that time, I was able to spend about 30% of my, of my work effort, I would say, on things that were really socially impactful, but it wasn't consistent. And yeah. So, 
Yeah. The- some some years ago, I decided that I was just going to go all in on only working on issues and and projects that are are socially impactful and yeah. no more cell phones. No more cell phones. I gotcha. No. And, and what what exactly were the cell phones replaced with? <laughs> cell phones are replaced with community development, with mm-hmm. social justice kinds of issues. Um, the things I've been working on the, over the last uh, 12 months have been um, criminal justice reform, um, higher education access for low-income first-generation college students, kids yeah. who have never had any exposure to that kind of higher education. Their parents didn't encourage it. How do we help them be, get into schools and be successful? Mm. Um, homelessness, um, issues like that. Wow, that's, that sounds pretty cool. And and how long would that the length of that project last? It would be the same as the ones you mentioned before? No, the cycles are a little different because I'm working in um, sort of in a foundation space and a public policy space where things do move more at an academic pace. Um, so I have fewer opportunities to constantly start at that bottom point again where I'm just a... An, sort of an intellectual infant in the space and mm-hmm. don't really know, uh, you know, have, have only things to learn. Um, and so that roller coaster ride has flattened out a little bit for me, um, or at least lengthened out. But also things don't happen, things don't reach fruition as quickly in mm-hmm. this world. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd see this sort of, you know, seeing your idea go to market is, um, is a less common experience. And so I've had to reframe the way I think about wins and, and yeah. the way I think about sort of the value of, of my contribution. Yeah, so what what would that be? Well, I think there, there are two main things. So I see, when I see something that makes me feel like, thank goodness I got to be involved in that, um, and that feels really like a, like a valuable way to have spent my time, it, it is sometimes something went to market. In other words, a service gets initiated for a community that I'm very interested in, in supporting. But but there are two other things that have that have risen in prominence. One of them is helping to s- prevent things from going out into the world that I think would have a negative consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that happens more often than seeing things actually come into the world that have a positive consequence. And there's value in that. And I'm, I just get super excited about, about being, <laughs> being part of preventing that stuff from going out there. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is sort of creating enabling conditions. So working with organizations, working with, um, I'm making air quotes right here, working with sort of national experts on mm. things and trying to open up their minds to new ways of thinking about the challenges that they work on mm. and new ways of framing the problem in the first place so that they can think differently and um, hopefully on a, on a sustainable organizational level sort of shift the ways that they innovate and address social problems and socially relevant uh, scientific problems like global warming and, and things of that nature, um, just in a whole new way. Yeah. Does that come for you also with some form of emotional toll or? Well, I suppose it does. You mean the the loss of being able to see things really happen? No, I, I mean, uh, mostly uh, contributing to preventing negative things from emerging or it's, it, it it has no connection to it for you. Oh, I, I sure it's an emotional experience. I don't. I wouldn't call it an emotional toll. I think it's sort of an emotional high. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give you a quick example. I was working with uh, uh, the uh, corporate social responsibility team at a at a big corporation, and we had been sort of working with that team and our consulting team. We were we were trying to help them spend some money on something that would really be a service to the community. But, you know, it's a corporate investment. It's a CSR investment. That's a mm-hmm. corporate investment. They also wanted to get some um, some brand benefits, some, some recognition from society that they had done a good thing. Um, so it had to be visible and it had to be um, had to be something they could point to easily as a, as a service that they invested in. 
And one of the ideas that came out, and it turned out to be the idea that we got most excited about, was providing, was creating a a, uh, a collection of mobile service vehicles that would travel around major cities like Los Angeles, where there are huge homeless populations or people who are housing unstable, um, and would move from neighborhood to neighborhood and would be in place on certain appointed days and would provide services to those folks. Everything from helping them with um, government paperwork to get services that they were having trouble getting access to, to getting counseling, to having basic medical checkups, you know, new shoes if you need them, mm. some groceries if you need them, things like that. So this would be sort of a multi-service band that, or a bus that travels around. We loved the idea and it had the added benefit of being mobile, which was to us meant that we would reach more people as well as sort of carry the brand wherever that vehicle went. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seemed like a, like, you know, as the phrase goes, win-win. Yeah. And so we, we took, we developed this concept pretty far. And then at some point I started working very closely with people in affected communities where we would roll this concept out. And it became, it came clear to me really quickly that it was a bad, bad idea. <laughs> and, and to sum it up, the, you know, the, 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 the thing that people expressed to me that summed up the, the badness of the idea best is uh, the expression was, look, we're homeless. The number one most valuable resource we have in our lives, if we can find it, is stability. Mm-hmm. And so when you build a resource that has wheels on it and is moving from place to place, that scares us. You're, you're, you're poking at our deepest fears, which is instability and not knowing. Yeah, yeah. Where that thing's going to be. <laughs> so it, that idea got squashed. Yeah. Oh. While it felt like a failure, it was also a huge win because it sent us back to the drawing board to create something that, that made much more sense. Yeah, and, and when you say we create, like, do you work alongside other types of disciplines? Uh, yes, for sure. And it's, um, you know, it's interesting because I think anthropology as a, as a discipline is is it's it's one of those disciplines that sort of thrives um in contact with other mm. uh, other species of <laughs> of uh of knowledge work and other species of meaning work we we like to come into contact with sort of uh, uh, other sort of ontologies like what 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 is what are what is the nature of being what is the the how are things in the world related and what mm-hmm. are their meaning? Mm-hmm. And that, that for us is our most comfortable space, I think, is sort of trying to bridge those things and merge them together with our own approach. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that carries over fairly well, or we could do a better job at it, but, it, but it, that the instinct among anthropologists to do that, to learn from others and to merge ideas and to create collaborative pictures of reality and possibility <laughs> from very different perspectives. I think that's something that we do. I don't know if it always works well for us because other, many other disciplines don't feel that same way about wanting to play with us that way. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. so that creates a challenge in the academic world where we've got, you know, some of the hard sciences and some of mm. the, you know, the sometimes uh, sociology departments feel like they're more rigorous and less um, sort of interpretive than anthropology. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they, you know, we're either sort of like pushed into the humanities or pushed into the social sciences and nobody knows quite what to do with us. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a real threat for maintaining anthropology departments around the world. Mm-hmm. And it also happens in the industry space where um, sometimes our engineering colleagues and our our design colleagues and our strategy colleagues, they don't quite know what to do with us. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you, what do you call yourself? Like, do you use a title when you are part of this project? <laughs> um, it depends upon who I'm speaking with and uh, how they've learned to think about this kind of a role. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, design ethnographer is, is one of, the things I'll often say in reference to myself, uh, design anthropologist, 
those are the top ones. Yeah. But other times I'll say cultural strategist or mm-hmm. you know something else that I think is going to make more sense within an organization. Yeah. And do you also uh, need to feel uh, need to explain what it is or give a short definition? Yes, usually. Um, I I think it's you know it's remarkable and it's a good reminder that um, I I know that my mother is completely incapable of describing to her friends what her son <laughs> Mike does, mm-hmm. um, and she's heard me talk about it for you know for decades. Yeah. So. Yeah. That to me is a reminder that it's it requires a little unpacking for anybody I'm talking with for the first time, unless I know that they already are familiar with, <laughs> with yeah. this kind of. Yeah, yeah I, I got you. And you know, coming coming back to how you started the story with your original interest in in social movements, did you um, ended up revisiting that space or doing more work from a commercial perspective in that space? Yeah, yeah, to some extent. So. I often have the opportunity to work with communities um, or to bring together unlikely communities of people. And so um, my work in social movements taught me a great deal about how you sort of um, bring folks together uh, in a fairly organic way around an attempt to create something that works on their common behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, And, and to and basically forge a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and my, the, I, I just recently published an ethnography on, on uh, how a social movement builds and, uh, and, and how it sustains itself in, in India. And I, the title of the ethnography was Cultivating Communities. So mm-hmm. I was looking at, cultiva- at farmers, cultivators. But also I was fascinated by this process of how you cultivate that. Yeah, how you bring yeah. that community together and, and maintain it and nourish it. Um, and so that that does come into my work from time to time. And I also think there's something related to that work, which is uh, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at dialogue within uh, within social movements and the, the ways that people position their interests and the, um, the you know, the, the way they use popular culture, the way they use their um, their, their group identities of, uh, or their group expressions of identity, the way they use body language, the way mm-hmm. they use uh, every, everything to sort of craft an idea of selfhood and then distinctions, distinctions within that larger corporate group of, of different selfhoods, um, but in a way that hangs together. And um, so that, that, that whole dialogical process mm-hmm. um, is something that I think is present in every collaborative effort. And so I'm, I, I, I find myself thinking back to social movements, even when I'm in a team room with, you know, two designers and a strategist yeah. and, uh, and an engineer yeah. and thinking about what is this, what is the dialogue we're having right now? Yeah. Yeah. And, and how are we collectively crafting something that's going to be, <laughs> that's going to work? Yeah, and and do you do you find also that the ideology behind the group is as easy to capture, to feel, to see? Uh, sometimes more than other times, and it depends on, on many things like the um, the interpersonal dynamics of the group, how much mm-hmm. contact you get, how much immersive contact you have with each other. Um, I think it's it's much more difficult in um, in a distributed environment where you. Yeah. Can, Um, as we as we are right now, sort of you know speaking mm-hmm. over Skype and yeah. um, and not picking up on on a lot of subtle interpersonal cues that mm-hmm. we would be picking up on if we were sitting at the same table. Mm-hmm. There's less of a text to read. Yeah, we've had a we've had a, a linguist uh, from India, a um, professor from on the podcast, Dr. Anupam Das, and he he spoke um, a bit to that too. Um, He, and he has a very interesting research into politeness and trolling on social media. And yeah. Uh, yeah, what does it mean to be polite and what does it mean to not be polite? And uh-huh. how, how do you use different cues to interpret that? It was pretty cool. But uh, he, he, it, it reminded me what you said a bit about, um, about his, his work. But do you um, do you do you find that you have also built your own ideologies around the type of projects that you commit yourself to and the type of impact that you want to contribute towards achieving? Yeah, I mean the, the two things 
Should I say two? Yeah, I'll narrow it to two. I, I would say the two things that weigh most heavily on me now and are sort of the the the, the bar that I hold new project work up to mm-hmm. um, is social justice related issues. Um, you know, work where I sort of get to engage and collaborate with the underdog, folks who are getting sort of the the raw end of the human experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and then those larger sort of existential challenges that face all of us, like uh, pollution, um, mm-hmm. uh, the climate change, uh, you know, what are we doing sort of with technology, with policy, with, with culture change mm-hmm. that are going to prevent us yeah. um, from completely ruining everything that matters for everybody. Yeah. And, and do you uh, explore like projects specifically in those areas or how do you kind of connect your work to these things that you believe in? Yeah. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I work with a handful of different foundations that mm. have focus areas in, um, in, in related uh, spaces. And so I've been fortunate to be able to have a pretty steady stream of of engagements with those folks. And, and so I'm still jumping around a bit, still on that roller coaster a bit, sort of moving from homelessness to mm. environmental issues to criminal justice reform. Yeah. I'm just starting on something right now, which is uh, on affordable housing. Mm. Um, and what can we do sort of technologically, architecturally, um, and on a policy level about about making housing more affordable for people. Um, and this is a new space for me. I, I haven't worked in this area and I'm, I'm loving the, these initial days of trying to get smart enough in that space to, to be able to think about it innovatively. Yeah. Nice. And, and tell me a bit more about the, the methods that you use to kind of uncover this, this insights and how yeah, do they link so, to your training or yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I very much consider myself an ethnographer. Um, so every project that I do will have a big chunk in the, in the center of it, which is getting out and, uh, interacting with and, and, and collaboratively thinking with, um, the most affected people, or I should say the, the people who are stakeholders, mm-hmm. because they're not always the most affected people. Sometimes they're the most empowered people who are having the effect, but I need to understand where they're coming from and what's at stake for them as well. Um, so uh, for this housing work, I'll be spending some time with, uh, with folks who have, um, who have benefited from, a, from affordable housing, folks who, have, who could benefit but have not had access um, folks who are resistant to it, um, folks who have affordable housing in their neighborhood and resent it, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'll be talking with policymakers, I'll be talking, spending time with, um, with people who are approaching affordable housing from different perspective architecturally, sort of mm-hmm. trying to innovate on what those spaces can look like. And in the process, and, and, and most of that, most of the emphasis will be with the, with the intended beneficiaries because they're the ones who ultimately need to be um, collaborating the most and sort of envisioning a design alternative, um, whether that be a policy design or, or a space design. Mm-hmm. But, um, but so then that, that will put me on, you know, on the road for uh, a number of weeks that's the big sort of, you know, the research bulge in the middle of the project. And then there's, you know, back into the, back into the office and doing analysis and, um, trying to figure out what it all means. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it, it's, it's very much like an academic ethnographic research project, but the ultimate objectives are different. The epistemological enterprise is a little bit different because trying to learn the same things and sort of question question your learning in exactly the same rigorous ways yeah um, yeah you want to get more quickly to something you can act on yes yes i also wanted to ask you did you ever think about going back to academia or to teaching or in in those capacities that you were following up in the early days 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I, my, my career has been sort of uh, not really bouncing back and forth between those, but sort of like sliding one foot further in and then further out of <laughs> space. Um, so uh, I, I did teach an in- intensive um, field studies program in India for a while, for a couple of years um, with the School for International Training. That was basically sort of a crash course in how to do uh, field ethnography, but mm-hmm. for people who had no aspirations to be anthropologists, it was um, basically training them in uh, in their own respective fields how to um, quickly try to make sense of another uh, another culture, another society, and mm-hmm. and how to, how to be effective within that. Yeah, um, and then. These days, I I teach sort of more sort of on a you know closer to the design space, but as an anthropologist. So I, I do some short courses um, every few semesters. I'll I'll do a short course at uh, at the design school at Stanford, mm-hmm. uh, and those are usually on I, I do one on observational research techniques for design and innovation. Um, I do one and sort of unpacking the idea of what users are and how we can think about users more effectively and um, and then do some training around how to bring that into whatever discipline you're in. And that's great because I'll get these graduate students from, from law, from medicine, mm-hmm. from library science, from uh, policy studies, from just about every field uh, at Stanford. And it's, it's really brilliant that sort of cross- yeah. Um, inter- interdisciplinary fertilization. Yeah. Um, and then I, I have been doing a, a bit of teaching for, for a few years. I was uh, teaching as a portion of a, uh, of a, um, a, a research unit at, um, at the Maryland Institute uh, College of Art in Baltimore in the U.S. Um, so as a visiting faculty member, I'd go over and spend some time over there and work with their students in the, uh, the graduate program in social design. And so it's, it's been really fun for me to sort of take some of the stuff that I'm working on in my, uh, in my, prof- in my consultative life and, and turn that into teaching material. And at the same time, then also working with in front of students, I can, I can sort of try, I can do test runs of mm-hmm. ideas that, I, yeah. that I'd like to bring into my consulting and see how it works in that sort of, um, you know, incubate it a little bit in the, in the, in the student environment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, um, you know, do a couple of revolutions on it and get it ready for bringing in front of clients. So they are, um, they're, they're really a, a sort of a beautiful combination of mutually supportive ways of, of doing work. That's pretty cool. Do, do you ever like um, talk about transitioning from the academic space to the applied space? Or do you ever like speak in front of more um, anthropology connected um, environments? Yes, actually, we did a panel at the, uh, at the American Anthropological Association this past year on, um, on teaching in the academy for anthropology, anthropology and industry, mm-hmm. and then sort of like how we can sort of prep um, academic anthropology students um, from going, uh, you know, for going from this sort of like theory-heavy yeah. training into into the industry world, where theory is is sort of looked at with with terror. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. That was very nice. Yeah. Very nice way of putting it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the idea is that everybody wants um, robust insights. Everybody who works with anthropologists in industry, hmm. they want the insights. They want yeah. the insights. Yeah. They don't, but they're scared to death of theory because they think that's going to complicate everything. And yeah. so, what we need to do to be effective in industry is to is to know theory and hmm. to work with theory, but yeah. never tell anybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, it reminds me of my first applied anthropology project when I uh, budgeted uh, one month just for building a theoretical framework. <laughs> yes, beautiful. <laughs> right? And then they came back to me and said, what are, what are you talking about? What is this building a theoretical? Are you going to build already a recommendation in one month? That's what they kind of understood. And 
um, you know, like a theoretical framework of um, how to really, really solve the problem. And then you go and test it in the research. And then that, that's how they understood it. Uh, and then I said, no, uh, this is just looking into theories to kind of find an anchor uh, to look through when you are going on the field side. Um, and then they, they told me like, uh, I thought you already had that. That's why we hire you. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It should be already. A great example. Yeah. Yeah. It should be already in your head. Like we're not going to pay for that. Sorry. They didn't pay for it. So. But it was a it was my first initial shock from designing a project in applied anthropology. I, I, I really believe that when when people in industry it's changing a little bit. There are some folks who really get the immersive ethnography idea and they really get the the importance of theory and they value that in in a higher if they, when they're looking for somebody to work with them from from the social sciences, but. Still, the vast majority of people who are thinking, "Oh, it would be interesting to have an anthropologist involved here." Yeah. What they're what what they're imagining is someone who's going to go to people's homes, sit at the kitchen table, do a one-hour interview, and then come back with some ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I wanted to ask you something specific about about writing. You know, because that mm, was sure. particularly my second biggest challenge moving from yeah. academia to applied. Um, how to write something that uh, delivers impact in that world, you know? Because I think I think that the writing style and the way you write an argument um, after you do an ethnography in the academic space is very different from the way you deliver insights in an applied space. Through storytelling, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I, I went through an exercise when I was first, when I, when I joined that technology company, where mm -hmm. I, I was only there for a year and a half before I then broke out on my own. But when I joined that technology company, I really quickly learned that, that I had been trained to write in all the wrong ways. Mm -hmm. And for that purpose, yeah, I love academic yeah. writing, but, but it didn't work there. And one of the things I, I had to teach myself, and I, and I and also was the beneficiary of, of a lot of... Um, um, solicited and, and unsolicited feedback <laughs> was, was one brevity. Right, mm. it needs we, we need to write with a much greater economy of language and much simpler language. Yeah. Two, very few qualifiers. Right, you mm. should know what you think, and I even think you should know what the answer is. No footnotes that say this may not be true every in every instance, but we believe that it, you know for you know, the preponderance of the case. Yeah. 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 Whatever. You, no, you just, you, you say this is a truth. Mm. And that's something that we recoil from in anthropology because there, there's never any sort of absolute truth. No. Um, and then the third thing is learning to sort of go through sentence by sentence and asking yourself, I would even write it in the margin. So what? So what? Mm. And <laughs> Because if you have sentences, if you if you have information in an, an industry facing um, strategy deck or a findings deck or some notes that you're sending to the design team to tell them what you're finding in the field, if it all doesn't feel like something they can then do something with, then it's a failure. They're not interested in just the intellectual exercise of, um, you know what. Uh, bill paying at the kitchen table is like for somebody in Utah. They want to know how, how they how they do something about that, how they provide a different service or a different product, or um, yeah. How how does that knowledge land? Do you think it's a it's a how can you make that process accelerate a bit more? You know what is because I think uh, also from my own experience and, and and speaking to other people in this space, it's not something that it's explicit. You know, it's not something that it's very um, uh, known upfront. You know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, and I think it's it's something that it's you know it's unfortunate that we're not it maybe shifting a little bit, but certainly when I was in the academic world, and I still hear this from other people who have been there more recently, I, I, I don't think there's training in that. I mm. think, and this is where anthropology is sort of in that weird space between a you know a humanities and a science. Is it we're very philosophical in our writing. We're very exploratory. Mm -hmm. We um, we love ideas for the sake of ideas. Yeah. And and uh, you know people in industry will very readily tell you 
an insight with that you can't act on is not an insight. Mm. But, I mean, uh, the academy thinks it's an insight, but <laughs> industry doesn't. Yeah. It has to be. It has to be actionable. And yeah. so I think we need to we need to be teaching that a, a bit more, um, even for people who are going to stay within the academic realm, because I think even. Um, I think oftentimes for academic students of anthropology, they have difficulty connecting the dots between very um, idealist and philosophical anthropological writing and the real world. Yeah. So, so what are the implications? Okay, so that's interesting theory. What are the implications of that? How does that affect how, um, you know, the potential for uh, ending warfare on planet Earth? How does that affect the potential of whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about the uh, dynamics of power with the informants? With that, is that also something that is quite different? You know, I, I would imagine in, a, in an industry space, the, your users or the, the people that you're kind of uh, engaging with to understand their needs, um, they have somewhat a different relationship of power to your result than they have in, in an academic ethnographic work. It's that took me a, a bit of time to, to work through, um, in part because it is, especially when you're dealing with, with users or consumers rather than clients as your object of study. Mm. When, you're, when you're dealing with these people who are, um, have been recruited to participate in a, mm. in a study, it's a commercial transaction first yeah. and foremost. Yeah. And ideally, it's not that in in academic field work. Mm. You're, you know, it's a it's a it's a human to human exploration um, yes, that yes. everybody's interested in. Yeah. So when it becomes a commercial transaction, it becomes um, first of all, you're dealing with people who are who are not have, have personally at stake in the. Um, in the knowledge generation, in the in the insights generation that that emerges, uh, mm -hmm. except for completing the work as as laid out and getting paid. Yeah. So that that changes the the kind of dialogue you can have and the kind of collaboration you can have. But then it also introduces because it's a, a money transaction. It introduces a power relationship that is, yeah. I think, even weirder than the power relationships that often occur in the um, in the academic yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever done um, studies on employees? Mm-hmm, for sure. Because I would, I mean, I'm, I'm, sure. I, I, I have experienced that in that you have an even more uh, complex uh, hierarchies of power that, 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 that influence the relationship and, I mean, the content of what they tell you. Because you're working for their boss? Yeah, I think that that's one. Uh, your positionality plays a, a big role, but also the, cult the organizational culture, um, the ideology uh, behind the products that you are inquiring. And um, if the product is developed by the company, then it comes also with the expectations of use. And I think, mm -hmm. and I think when you are designing and building products for your own employees, you know, my experience sitting in meetings where they start building hypotheses that then they test out is that they they don't start with a hypothesis where they where the um, user is the king, you know, but they start with a hypothesis mm -hmm. where the king is actually the the one that gives you the revenue to build the product, and and yeah, what yeah. what their intention with the product that will affect the users is, you know. So that, that also comes with so many um, assumptions about why um, a certain task is not done in a certain way. And, you know, so it's, yeah, I, I find it very different, very interesting, but quite different. Yeah, I've, I've never had a client who has um, expressed a desire to, um, first and foremost, improve employee happiness. I, I think anytime you're, on some level, when you're interviewing employees and doing observational work with employees and so forth, you're trying to figure out um, how to how to solve challenges that aren't necessarily going to make their lives better mm. <laughs> in ways that aren't necessarily make their lives better. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you how do you deal with the ethics of that? Has, has it ever happened to you that you felt you had to? Um, yeah. Explore that more. 
Yeah, I, so one of the things that I've been really, um, I, I, at least I hope I've been really diligent about carrying over from academic anthropology is asking myself um, the same kinds of questions that a, an institutional review board would ask me mm. in the academic setting of my work. Sort of how am I looking after the, uh, the best interests of my informants? Mm. Uh, how transparent am I being with them about what's going to come of this? And how am I protecting their, um, their identity and, yeah. and their thoughts um, to the extent that, that I'm able? I mean, what, to what extent am I able and, and how am I following through on that? Yeah. And so that's one of the things that's really difficult also, I think, in industrial anthropology. Uh, or even in the foundation space where I work, mm, mm. is it's 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 more difficult than in the academic world to to share your work without losing control of some of that uh, people's identities. Um, people, you know, because you're often sharing images of folks, but you're saying mm. these are infer- they're for internal use only. You can't you know you can't put these on your website. But you lose that sort of, the chain of responsibility gets broken. Yeah, yeah. In my academic work, the files never leave me, and mm-hmm. I control what gets published and where. Yeah. How, we, how I, I try to get um, around it in, in some of my last projects is to find um, a person that would be an ethics advisor, ideally mm-hmm. inside academia, who would be that kind of objective ethical voice that would challenge us at, at, at set times throughout the project. Um, around some things that we are not seeing, um, but uh, it is it is it is a difficult one. No, it's it's a difficult one. But it's um, I, I find it also that it kind of keeps you sharp. I for me, it, it, I feel like I'm um, when I was doing um, ethnography inside academia. Sometimes you know the informants they just I don't know. It it, it felt as if especially if you're there for a few months and, and you just then come and leave. And it's very hard to, to really feel the potential negative impact of, of the ethical choices that you do with the data. And, and I feel that in the, in the applied space like that, that, that potential negative impact is so much more at the front of my mind that it makes me a better researcher. Yeah, and I think another one of the challenges, you know, we were talking about the, 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 the knowledge encounter between researcher and the researched, you know, between um, anthropologist and informant has, is, is basically in the industrial world is a commercial transaction. And I think in some ways we let, let ourselves slip into this notion that because it's a commercial transaction, that absolves us of responsibility. Mm. We bought and paid for everything that they shared with us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's and, and I think we have to fight against that constantly. We still mm-hmm. owe um, we we still owe respect um, to to those people, and we still have to have integrity in our research. Yeah. Well, Mike, um, I'd love to ask you so much more, but we're kind of nearing the end um, of, of of the time that we have. But I just wanted to ask you um, something that we ask almost all of our speakers. What would, what would you give as an advice to somebody wanting to transition from, from the academic to the applied space? There's a lot, but I would say, you know, the, 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 some of the things that I find myself often speaking with people uh, who are asking this question for themselves is uh, learning to write differently hmm. um, and, and the ways that we discussed, sort yeah. of, you know, keeping in mind the so what, more brevity, all of that. Um, learning to communicate more visually mm. it has uh, outside of academia I, uh, the, the visual has much more impact um, and it makes a, a, a stronger more memorable impression um, it also takes up less space uh, and, and I think communicating visually also means learning from your designer colleagues or if you don't have designer colleagues yet um, try to uh, find ways to learn a few sort of basic things about design. So visual mm-hmm. design, communication design, um, what makes something sort of appealing and, and um, appetizing? What makes people want to consume this information you're putting in front of mm-hmm. them? And how can that, um, how can it also feel professional in this space? Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's just, that's something that very few of us coming out of academia have. We know how to put a bunch of um, uh, black 
uh, letters on white sheets of paper and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. What about the other way around, like a company that wants to start experimenting with social scientists, um, people from academic in research? How can, yeah. how can they start doing that in an in a easy way? It's a good question. Uh, I, I, I think one thing they could do is, is recognize this, this different kind of beast that they're bringing into the, <laughs> into the conversation. Yeah. Um, and sort of maybe have very frank conversations with that person or with other academicians about sort of like what are the strengths of your particular way of doing things mm -hmm. that we can leverage and what are some of the habits that we want to, at least for the purposes of, of your work here, um, try to, you know, try to break a yeah. little bit or, you know, retrain some of your instincts. Um, and how can we do that? No. So do we give you a, a, a member of the design team as a mentor um, rather than, uh, you know, just sort of like leave you on your own to sort of go off and research things and come back? Yeah. Uh, how can we build a culture that acknowledges your your unique contributions, but, but also um, allows you to merge in as effectively as possible so everybody can take the best advantage of, mm. of, of bringing those folks on board? Yeah, that's quite a quite a big ask of a company, right? <laughs> well, it is, but <laughs> I I think the, the 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 scariest thing for companies, and one of the reasons that yeah. they don't uh, hire social scientists as often as they might, is that they're scared to death that uh, folks will equivocate for too long. You know, be too hesitant to say, "Okay, I have the final answer," mm. um, and um, And, and we'll spend too much time in yeah. research. Yeah. And so it's, it's getting to something, um, something certain faster mm. is, is the important, the, that's the important gap to, to close between academia and, and the, the organization. Yeah. I, I remember I've been like go interviewing for companies that are interested in research or um, interested in anthropologists and you get... Sometimes you get this wide, very wild variety of what they consider the right time, you know, or, or not too long, or not too, not too short. And I've got like questions ranging from, well, can you do this in three days to can you do this in three weeks, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, that, that, that concept of time and how much is too much, it's, it's quite difficult to grasp when you're starting out, I think. It is. It is. And that's where I think most people starting out in that tr transition need, uh, need a mentor, somebody who's mm. made that transition. Not just a mentor who, who was born and raised in the industrial environment, but somebody who actually came from academia and learned yeah, how to yeah. be uh, functioning in, a, in an industrial environment. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. Mike, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.